Alright, alright. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the final, yes, the final episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast for 2022. If you thought I was going to say the final one ever, I apologize for the minor heart attack there, or for disappointing you because you wish me to go away. But if you wish me to go away, you don't have to keep listening. So, not trying to scare anyone. But yeah, last one for 2022. I'm Robert Winfrey, and I am, as always, your host. Uh, on the agenda this evening, fairly short episode, uh, a review of last night's UFC on ESPN Plus 74, the last UFC event of the year, and some news, because there's some news, some speculation, some big question marks, so we'll talk a little bit about that, and then, you know, let me do the scheduling update first, rather, at the end of the episode. So, as I mentioned, last episode of the year... I don't think there will be an episode on the 1st of January for 2023. That is a Sunday, and that's normally when I record. But between the lack of content to talk about, generally, and the fact that I might be doing some traveling, uh, it's a little bit up in the air at the moment, but pending, you know, some weather discussion, some scheduling stuff with family and whatnot, but... It's just easier if that's a thing off of the table for the moment. So there will not be one on the 1st of January. However, there will be one the 8th. Uh, that will preview... Will that preview? I believe... Let me check. Yes. The one on the 8th will preview the first UFC event of the year. That's UFC... Uh, to do That's on ESPN... ESPN Plus... You've seen ESPN Plus 75. That is the Gasolum versus Imovov card, which is a pretty solid main event. The best fight on that card, however, is at welterweight Jeff Neal and Shavkat Rachmanov. Let me have a look at that card real fast. Uh, Jimmy Flick's back. Uh, interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, let's see, what else do we got? Give me something here. Pudahele Soriano and Roman Kopilov might be fun. Uh... Dan Ige and Damon Jackson. Uh, that That's a good one. That's a pretty good one. And... Find one more. Oh! Umar Nurmagomedov and Hani Barcelos. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've thought very highly of Hani Barcelos for a long time now. Um, he had that rough and weird loss to Victor Henry. That really messed him up. I mean, the loss to Timur Valiev was legit, and Timur Valiev is very legit. Um, but yeah, he's he's the only guy, I think, who's beaten Saeed Nurmagomedov. Um, I, I like Barcelos a lot. And he's going to be a real stiff test for Umar Nurmagomedov, who is undefeated. He's 3-0 in the UFC. Um, yeah, so that... There's a few... You got a pretty good main card there, actually. I mean, the prelims, yeah. But Imovov and Gastelum, Neil and Rachmanov, uh, Ige and Jackson, and then Nurmagomedov and Barcelos. That's a really solid free ESPN Plus main card, actually. So not previewing that this time, but that will be our first UFC event of 2023. Assuming the world doesn't spontaneously combust or the second coming doesn't happen between now and then, that's the plan. So, yeah. And, yeah, that will be on the 8th. So, that's the schedule going forward. The 8th might also feature some of my 2022 year-end stuff. 
Um, I mentioned this before, but I lost... I had to replace my computer partway through the year, and I lost a giant chunk of uh, note-keeping that I had had on stuff that I keep track of for year-end reviews. I had a list of, here's my nominees for Knockout of the Year, my nominees for Submission of the Year, Fight of the Year, Fighter of the Year, Breakout Fighter of the Year, etc. And I keep a list, and I update it periodically, and then at the end of the year, I look at it, I go back and I rewatch some stuff and I sort it out and I come up with my final list and that's not going to happen this year again, I, I'm not I'm just not going to go back and rewatch everything that I would need to rewatch. So I'm still going to do something about it, but it's not going to be kind of what it has been in the past so I apologize I will be back on appropriate note keeping and taking, assuming I, I don't anticipate the same kind of technological problems for 2023, so I just don't. Alright with that all out of the way, let's talk about UFC on ESPN Plus 74 then, shall we? So, the main event. Weird fight. <laughs> Jared Cannonier defeats Sean Strickland via split decision. There was a 49-46 for Strickland, and then two 49-46s for Jared Cannonier. And the crazy thing is, I can't argue with... There is not a there is not a permutation of scores for this fight that is wrong unless you throw in a 10-8. Otherwise, jumble up scores of 10-9 for the five rounds, toss them in the air, and whatever comes out is a justifiable score, not because the criteria is crap, that's a separate argument, but because this fight was just one of those fights. Uh, it was just weird. You know, Sean Strickland doing a lot of the jabbing, a little bit of stance switching and jabbing, and Cannoneer throwing some leg kicks, throwing some jabs, struggling to find power punches, and just a lot of that over and over and over again. They kind of got going in the fourth a little bit. That was when Strickland started firing, like, at three punches at a time. Um, yeah, look... Doing it live, I was 48-47 Cannoneer. Thinking about it for about 20 minutes, I kind of switched my mind around to Strickland. Again, 48-47. Um, I think I had... What round was swingy for me? Might have been the fifth. Again, like, there's... Uh, I'll talk about it in a second. Again, for me, not necessarily objectively. Because I think I had it even going into the fifth, but that's not solid. So, for me, the fifth would have been the swing. I don't know. I, I, I kind of thought, the more I've thought about it, like, maybe a better way to phrase it. If I'm not satisfied with scoring round by round, personally, like internally, and I try to figure things out after that, I then do the, well, who won the fight? And I'm not even saying that's clear in this case. It's not. It's definitely not. But, I think I lean Strickland here, just a little bit. Now, that might just be me. Like I said, you could go 50-45 either way, and I think it's perfectly justifiable. These two just combined for a very weird kind of... I hate, I hate to say low activity, because I think that's a little bit of a disservice. Like, the ref never had to get in there and go, guys, you're fighting, you know, let's throw stuff. Like, they were they were engaged, I certainly don't mean to imply they weren't engaged. But there wasn't anything big. 
Um, there wasn't anything really consistent. You know, neither guy was just neither guy found a serious edge in any sort of capacity. It was just like the first round was basically the fight. So, eh. I mean, I wasn't horribly bored personally, but I wasn't like very engaged either. It, it just wasn't a very good fight. Um, was it the worst fight on this card? Hang on, let me let me have a think. No. No, I think McKenna and Vlismus was worse. Um. Morozov and Newson? No, no. Like, m maybe kind of on par, but not worse. So maybe uh, Vlismus and McKenna, like I said, maybe that was worse. But if you told me this was the worst fight on the card, I wouldn't, like, how much am I going to argue against you on that one? It wasn't great. Um, yeah, Cannoneer, after the fight, said, you know, I'd like a title shot, or if I can't fight for the belt, then let me fight someone who will get me a title shot next. That seems reasonable. Uh, I don't know who he'd fight. See, we, we got some issues at middleweight here. We have Alex Pereira as our champion. And you'd think that, you know... Adesanya might have a case for an immediate rematch. I certainly think he does. Doesn't mean he'll get it, but there's a case to be made, for the record. You've got in... Here's another bit of, like, curiosity. So, Paulo Costa is still saying he's not actually signed a contract to fight Robert Whitaker for Perth. Um, that would be a problem for a lot of people if Costa's telling the truth. And bear in mind, I don't know if he's lying or not. He might just be weird. He's kind of a weird guy. But it's equally true that the UFC has, in the past, announced fights like that as a means of putting public pressure on fighters to acquiesce to specific terms. That's also a thing that happens all the time. I don't know which... I don't know who's telling the truth here. I really don't. If Whitaker and Costa haven't actually signed to fight yet, um, that's kind of a problem. That's coming up pretty soon. So, you know, be aware of that. If he has and he's just blowing hot air, then I don't know what he's doing, but okay, he's just being weird on social media. Whatever. That's entirely up to him, I suppose, in that respect. Uh, but... So if that fight happens, that might get us some clarity. If that fight is being promoted but hasn't actually been signed yet and doesn't wind up happening, then who knows what's going on. We've already seen Whitaker and Cannoneer. I wouldn't hate a rematch necessarily. But I've already, again, like, I wouldn't hate it. But I don't know how necessary it is. If Whitaker and Costa falls apart and they don't want to do an immediate rematch for Adesanya, uh... Give me Pereira and give me Whitaker, and I'll and let Bobby Knuckles reclaim that belt, which I would favor him to do. Uh, I would. I think I said like I, I think Whitaker would handle him in the immediate aftermath of uh, Pereira and uh, Adesanya's fight. I still stand by that as a general sentiment, it, with the following caveat: obviously Pereira is a big middleweight, and he is dangerous, so. 
were he able to, if they make that fight and he does win, it wouldn't, you shouldn't be shocked. You might heavily favor Whitaker, and I do. But you would be foolish to completely discount Pereira. Uh, I just think his opportunities against Whitaker are a lot narrower than they are against other fighters because of the stylistic matchup. Anyway, neither here nor there. So, we're not quite sure what's going on with middleweight, uh, but Cannoneer, you know, he maintained his position. He's stuck in limbo, kind of waiting and seeing a few other things, as are most middleweights. Sucks for Strickland, but, you know, you fight like this, in a fight like, if you fight like this, and you have a fight that ultimately plays out like this, let me be clear on my language there, um, this is going to happen to you. And I'm sorry, like for, to the extent that my apologies matter, or to the extent that I care enough to be sorry personally. I mean, it's like I said, it sucks that it happens to him. It really does. Uh, but this isn't what I'm about to say is not necessarily Monday morning quarterbacking, which I think people do way too often with fights. Um, I point out like specific how specific scenarios developed. When it comes to, um, you know, certain uh, a certain how is how a finish evolves, or like specific instances of how a technique works, and I might on occasion do the well. Okay, here's a thing you can do. I very very rarely, and I do this very specifically, say here's something Fighter X should have done differently. Campbell, you know, the, again the Monday morning quarterback thing, right? If, for my non-American friends, it's a phrase. Where, when people sitting on the couch with beer and chips and pretzels think that they can perform the duties of a quarterback in American football, which is whatever else you want to say about American football, and I'm, I've been less than complimentary of the sport in the past, the job of quarterbacking in the NFL is one of the most difficult jobs in all of sports. And if you think I'm exaggerating that, I, do me a favor and consider the following, just very briefly. The population of the United States is 300-some-odd million people. 330, 350, something in that range, I forget exactly, but right, right around there. Less than 400, but more than 300. And if you look at the NFL currently, and how many teams there are, how many of those are actually... Let me put it like this, maybe this is a better way to phrase it. How many world-class soccer players are there? And you can take whatever position you want to pick, but like pick a position in soccer. How many world-class players are there at that position? Again, like in the world, in whatever sport, whatever league. You know, we just had the World Cup uh, wrap-up. Congratulations to Argentina, if any of my listeners happen to be from Argentina, or family from Argentina. Um, but... You can probably find double digits at each position, right? And, and there's some argument to be had about what position in soccer is the most difficult. But And soccer has an enormous participatory rate around the world, but when it comes to American football, like the number of genuinely world-class quarterbacks, you can probably count them on one hand. Like you, if you did have, if you feel like you could argue going to two, you certainly there, there's less than ten. Certainly less than eleven. If you look at how many teams are in the league, 
and how much money's on the line and how many people in this country play football, it's a... By all rights, there should be more than there are. It's just an extraordinarily difficult job to do. And there's a lot of people who think they can do better, who have no athletic ability whatsoever. I mean, look, guys, if you... If you've had more than one car accident in your lifetime and you get winded walking to the fridge from the couch, I don't really need to hear about your judgment or your athleticism or how you'd respond better under pressure. Because no, you wouldn't. But when it comes to Strickland, the only thing about his performance in this case I'm going to say, and again, there's a lot of other factors here, and he was in there and I wasn't. So let me couch this with, if you find yourself in a similar position, be that training or fighting or what have you, there's a couple of things that maybe you could do differently than he did that might help things work more in your favor. Um, one is volume, because while he had more volume than Cannoneer, it wasn't by a big enough margin. Uh, two is combination work. He didn't really start throwing in combination until the fourth round. Now, look, maybe he had a read. Maybe he was, you know, worried about power coming back. Any, like, any number of calculations here. So this is generally advice for the future. This is not how dare Sean Strickland not do X. The only thing about what he did that I was a little bit surprised by in terms of, in terms of how this played out, because this was a specific read. Not something generally. Again, generally, yeah, you <clears throat> being more on offense is better, higher volume is better. Like there's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff going on there. But there's a couple of things, and the, comes off the front kick actually. For a little bit in the first couple of rounds, he was kind of flicking them out to the body, usually off the lead leg, but not always, and just kind of you know, there were distance keepers. They were like deterring Cannoneer from crashing distance. Um, and, you know, getting kicked in the body is never fun. But he kind of got away from them, and I thought they were doing him a, a fair bit of service. And Eric Nixick, his head coach, sort of, you know, like, Strickland, some fighters, they don't really... They prefer to go kind of how they feel. Like, they have a coach, but they don't, you know... It, the relationship is different than between other fighters and coaches, like, and Strickland, I think by his own admission, and I'm not insulting the man here. I believe he's talked about this, so try not to, again, try not to be uh, insulting. But he's, you know, he doesn't, he tends to do what he's going to do. And when it came to this fight, Eric Nixick was telling him, anytime Cannoneer goes southpaw, throw your front kick to his face. Because Cannoneer does a little bit of switching. And I thought it was a good read by Eric Nixick. Like, I remember hearing him say, it was between rounds three and four, I think. Um, if not, it was then between four and five, or he said it both times, which wouldn't shock me either. But when he said it, I went, okay, wait a minute. He wasn't just saying throw the front kick to the face. Like, watch for southpaw, then it's there. So I watched for Cannoneer the next time he went southpaw, and, like, I think he was right. Like, 
the way Cannoneer was lined up relative to Strickland and the way his hands were positioned, I think that was a very potentially valuable weapon. Like, just throwing that to the face, it might have done some good work. Uh, I don't know if it would have knocked him out, because Jared Cannonier's not an easy guy to get out of there. But the first time he, th he threw that, it would have landed. I feel pretty... Unless he had a big misread on distance, I think that first front kick he threw to the face under those conditions would have connected. And, again... Again, maybe Sean Strickland had a different read. He was in there. I wasn't. You know, usual caveats. Uh, that's the only thing that I think a little bit surprised me in terms of you had a pretty good weapon that was working for you, and you got away from it, and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, and he might have had a very good reason. Like, to be very, very clear, I just might not have seen what he was seeing. I certainly didn't feel anything like he was feeling you know, physically, so... Uh, not second-guessing, not saying he's an idiot, or you're not going, you, you bonehead, why didn't you just... And, yeah, just. One of those things. Like anytime someone says, if you just do X, like you, they clearly have a very, at a, ba at a bare minimum, a very, very limited knowledge of what they're talking about, much less... Uh, so... It, again, one of those things about football, like, oh, just run the ball, like, just. Okay, buddy. And for the record, like that goes male or female with American football fans. There are some very, very opinionated, very, very passionate female fans of that sport. Uh, and as far as Strickland, like I said, I'm not... I think that was a weapon that he might have gotten away from for reasons that weren't very clear to me. And the one to the face, like, I think that was there. Maybe not, maybe not the kind of weapon that you can go to repeatedly, but... Once or twice, I think that would have landed very, very well. So, and take that for what it's worth. All right. Uh, yeah, that was your main event. Kind of a whimper of a fight to end the year on. Um, so let's move on. Light, uh, co-main event. Lightweight was looking forward to this fight. Very wrong about the outcome. Uh, Armin Soyukian defeats Demiris Magulavi unanimous decision. 30-27 across the boards. The 30-27 does not reflect how competitive the fight was. I, I scored a 30-27, pretty sure. Um, so, to be clear, I, I don't... And Soyukin was the rightful winner. It was... It's one of those things. Like, I'm not saying that, that Ismagulov should have won a round, because the first round, you could argue, I think the first round was the closest scoring-wise. Two and three were pretty, again, they were Soyukian rounds. But if you just see that and see 30-27, you might make some assumptions about how this fight went that would not be accurate. Um, Ismagulov was in this fight the whole way. Soyukian had to work for it a lot. But Soyukian was the rightful winner, ultimately. So, um, Good fight. Is this your fight of the night? No, it wasn't. Did they get screwed? Yeah, no, this would have been... This might have been my fight of the night if I were handing out this award instead of the one that got it. But the one that did get it, I don't think... It, it's not a robbery. Like, they didn't get screwed here. As I, as I sit here and kind of consider, like, no, they didn't get screwed. This would have been mine, but... I can understand why it went to the fight it did. We'll get to that fight in a minute or two here. 
Um, Saryukian... Uh, how do I phrase this? I'm a little bit... This is a weird thing to say because of how good he is. And he's very good. But... I worry a little bit about his development. It might be crazy to say, considering he just beat one of the tougher guys in the division. The guy I thought who was going to win. Like, But hear me out for just a second here. Saryukian has a couple of things that are exploitable issues. Now, he can fix these. He's still young enough. I mean, he's 26, for crying out loud. He's... And he's got 22 fights, though. And how long has he been fighting? Since 15? September of 15. So we're just a little over seven years. Okay. Yeah, these are... He's not quite into the cement is settled territory yet, but... A couple of things as it pertains to this. Um, he's not much of a finisher. He has two finish wins in the UFC. Now, he's fought some very, very tough guys. Let's be very clear about that. I'm not sitting here going, well, what, you know, you didn't finish Mateusz Gamrot. And, uh, his thing after the fact, like, I'm on a seven-fight winning streak. Everyone knows I beat Gamrot. No, you lost that fight, buddy. It was a good fight. It was a competitive fight, but you lost it. Please don't do this. Um, he had a, I mean, if you look earlier in his career, he was getting finishes because very, very talented fighters when they fight at a lower level can do that. Since stepping up, they've been fewer and further between. Now, some of this is to be expected with the level of opposition increasing. I think what I find troubling is there's not a tremendous amount of diversity in his game. His wrestling is really good. And he keeps a very good pace. Uh, that's kind of what won him the fight here. His striking is still kind of coming along. He's added a really nice lead leg um, lead leg kicking game. Uh, he, he can get that lead leg up to the head very quickly. Uh, he threw that a couple of times here. I was impressed. His defense is still a little bit shaky. He still doesn't have much when he's on... Like, if he's not on the front foot, he doesn't have a lot to offer. And that's a problem. Like, that's how... He and Makashev scrambled all over the place for three rounds, but part of the reason he struggled there was because Makashev was kind of putting him on the back foot. Uh, That was where he struggled with Gamrot, to be candid. Like, Gamrot was able to wrestle with him, was able to, to deter his wrestling... And make him pay for it. And if he did not, this might be why his, like, I won that fight is annoying to me. Like, is a big kind of red flag here. You lost that fight, sir. If you do not take from that the appropriate lessons, it's going to happen again. Now, he's good enough that you need someone like Mateusz Gamrot to really kind of force the issue. But it will happen again. I guarantee it. 
you need to learn the lesson from that loss. Because if you don't, well, again, it's going to happen again. And again and again. So, again, the lack of finish, his ground and pound, uh, it's a little bit trickier with him because he's got a cut. He, like, the way he stopped Joel Alvarez in, Feb in February, like, he, he did a serious number on uh, Joel. But, and this might seem like a weird but, but he's not good about finding places for ground and pound unless he has control. And if you're waiting to have offensive output until you have control, you're not going to find place for a lot of offensive output. I mean, his wrestling won him this fight, and his kind of aggression that facilitated that. But somebody a little bit more, I don't mean to, like, I think very highly of Demiris Magulov. But he was, he struggled a bit with the physicality. Like, he was very good, actually, about stopping takedowns. And he was very good about getting up if he was taken down. Like, go back and watch some of those sequences. That's good stuff. The problem he encountered is that he couldn't separate. Uh, so Saryukian is on him and may get like may not get every takedown. In fact, I, I could look up the numbers, but they're somewhat immaterial to the point. Like he wasn't getting every takedown, but and the the physical strength was, I think, a bit of a problem for Ismagulov. And, like I said, the, the the actual clinch breaking, the getting separation, that was a problem for him. His first-order takedown defense was usually quite good. His ability to wall walk safely, and to not allow... Uh, they gave Gamrat... Uh, I'm pretty sure they gave Soyuki a fair amount of control time, but it's not control in the sense that like, this is going to sound really weird, but, like, there's different kinds of control if we're controlling things. I mean, we're going to talk about somebody in a... We're going to talk about a, a fight in a little bit here that's the essence of control. But he had control in the sense that he was the one in the better position, but he never really had control to the point where he felt confident landing damage. That... That's going to be a problem for him, man. It just is. Unless he figures this out. And I'm going to hold up the gold standard of this. Not in the sense that how, why aren't you doing like the best that's ever done this, maybe, the style. But rather, like, I don't even see you, I need to see you making strides in that direction. Like, the best guy in the world at this was Khabib. I hate doing this to every lightweight in the world, but you, you got to hear me out here in this one because I'm speaking about a very specific way of fighting that Soyukian leans into. Uh, Khabib was very good about finding damage, right? Like, he didn't need full control to start bombing on you on the ground. He'd get enough. And enough for him was just a little bit. But any place he could sneak something in to hurt you, he'd do it. Didn't matter what it was, didn't matter where you were, 
Like, look at some of the fights that he had. He fought guys who were in places very good about getting up. Whose first order takedown defense was good. Like, watch his fight with Barboza. Barboza's first order takedown defense is pretty good, but he couldn't get Khabib off of him. Watch Dustin Poirier. Dustin Poirier knows how to stop you taking him down, knows how to wall walk. He's very good at those things. Khabib was just... Get to a slightly good position, and I'm going to do damage. And maybe you'll get up, maybe you won't. You know, he, he was great about, like, fighting, stripping, you know, stripping the posting limbs, hitting you, stripping him again, hitting you. Like, that kind of recycling is missing from Saryukian's game. If he can't get you into a position where he feels confident in his control, he's not going to do a lot of damage. Now, you still have to deal with that, and Ismagulov struggled with that here, clearly. But that's one of the ways Gamrot had, was able to beat him. Go back and watch that fight. Like, Saryukian struggles to put damage on him, and some of that is the crazy scrambles that they're doing and whatnot, but and that's part of it. But down the stretch, when Saryukian's gas tank, you know, fades a little bit, and his shots become a little bit easier to defend... He hasn't put the damage on Gamrot to complicate things, and Gamrot's able to find damage on him. So, if... On the off chance, you know, this hears him, and he hears this or whatnot, and wants to take some of my advice, for whatever it's worth. Like, this is something you need to work on. And I know it's not easy. I know it's not easy. But... You need to start finding in-between places to inflict some damage because you're only going to fight guys who are better and better and better at not letting you get control and if you're again if you're waiting to launch strikes in the clinch or on the ground until you feel rock solid in your position you're just there's a lot of guys you're never going to throw a meaningful strike against on the ground or in the clinch and you didn't throw a whole lot against Ismagulov in those positions and so, yeah, you can take that for whatever it's worth. Uh, as for Ismagulov, I think a little bit more, like, he's still very, very good. He's got a very, very good jab. Uh, he was able to wrestle with Saryuki in here uh, fairly effectively for a while. But a couple of things. Uh, his, the 25-foot cage hurt him. I'm not saying that we wouldn't have had the same outcome in a 30-foot cage, but the 25-foot cage didn't do him any favors. Uh, he was not as diligent as he could have been about keeping his back off the fence. He also got a little bit heavy on um, on punching. And again, he's got a very good jab, but what I mean by that... Um, Against a guy who constantly wants to crash distance, like Saryukian, there's other weapons you might have want, you maybe should have considered employing. You know, you could start introducing up elbows, knees, you know, stuff that as he's coming in, he's going to run into. So, that seemed to be a little bit absent, um, which is not, to be clear, like that was... Part of the reason that happened is Saryukin was content to kind of stay just at the edge of Ismagulov's punching range, 
get him to throw, and then duck under and go for the takedowns. Very well timed in that respect. But something Ismagulov might have wanted to consider a little bit more, again, putting some other weapons out there that might help deter the takedown. Uh, so that was a minor issue. I think his physicality was a bit of a... He might need a slightly different strength and conditioning program if he needs to... Because Soyukin might be, you know, one of the better physical wrestlers in the division, but he's not the only one. You're going to have to be able to deal with this. So that might be something to consider. Again, the, the footwork was a bit of an issue, you know, needing to stay a little bit further away from the fence. So uh, I hope he retools. You know, I hope he, I hope Ismagulov comes back because, I, like I said, I think he's got a very, very bright future as well. So um, Soyukin said he wanted to fight... You know, someone in the top after this, he still wants to be near the title. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really have a problem with that. He's he's ranked. He should be ranked. Um, yeah. So get him a get him a bigger fight. Uh, next up, let's see, flyweight. Amir Albazi defeated Alessandro Costa via punches, third round, two thirteen of the third. Um, Costa took this fight on relatively short notice. Albazi's a fairly legitimate, um, you know, fairly legitimate flyweight, so he complained that the division was ducking him after this. I mean, in his defense, like, he had, I think, three, this was his third fight for this card. He was supposed to fight Alex Perez. That got switched to Brandon Royville. Um, uh, Royville was, I don't know why the, we still don't know why Perez pulled out. Um, Royville pulled out because he broke his wrist. Like, Royville's not ducking you, man. Um, but, like, I understand his frustration in that respect, so. Good enough win from him. Uh, not a whole lot to talk about in, uh, in the fight. Um, featherweight. Alex Caceres, which I believe is how he prefers it pronounced. Um, if he prefers Caceres, I apologize. I know that's how it was generally. I heard him, I think I heard him say Caceres. I don't know. Um, he knocks out Julian Arosa with a head kick and some follow-up punches, 304 of the first round. Julian Arosa is one of the weirdest fighters to try and get a handle on. This dude went out there and handled Hakeem Dawadu, who is a dangerous striker, known only pre- predominantly for striking. And then Alex, uh, then Caceres, who hasn't finished a fight in, he choked out Sung Woo Choi. Who hasn't had a striking-related finish? Well, let's put it like that. Um, who has not stopped anyone with strikes since... He fought Rolando D in 2017. Which might have been his first TKO win in the UFC. Hang on. I wish to check this. So, decision... Triangle, decision, no contest, decision, 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 doctor stoppage in the D fight between rounds two and three, decision, 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 submission, decision, submission, decision, so that's a loss, and then, yeah, so this is his first straight up TKO, like, win in the UFC ever. And considering that he's been in the UFC since 2011, that says something. Um, yeah, 
Eros is just a weird guy to get a handle on, man. He just is. Uh, nice finish from uh, Caceres here. He's fighting Southpaw. He usually does. He throws the left cross, kind of darts off of it, and then, as a bit of a delayed follow-up, throws the left head kick, which lands and drops Erosa and leads to the finish. Um, the Normally, when you see this done, it's 1-2 into the head kick, but just the power hand into the follow-up head kick off the same side. Uh, it's a staple of Southpaw work in particular. Uh, Mirko Krokop used to throw this all the time. You know, find the angle, shoot the straight left, follow with the left kick, usually to the body, to set up the head kick. Um, I forget the kickboxer who made this famous. Uh, hang on, let me find that real fast. Uh, Therio. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I believe it's French, so T-H... So anyone might can look this up. T H E R I A U L T. So I'm assuming Therio. Um, yeah, it's it's a little bit underappreciated in MMA as far as combinations go. Um, Stephen Thompson, I think it, a lot of people are saying this reminded them of his UFC debut when he knocked out Dan Stitchin. That came off the lead side, but kind of a similar thing, like. Thompson kind of threw a jab with his right hand because he was fighting southpaw. Took a little bit of an angle backwards and then threw the kick up over the shoulder and knocked him out. Um, yeah, this one... Uh, if you want another example of someone who uses that combination a lot in MMA, I've mentioned before, Robert Whitaker does that. He does the one-two head kick. He likes it. It works well for him. It's a good combination. Um, if you're worried about it, here's a note about this. Um, especially against open stance. One of the things that kind of got Arosa in trouble here is Caceres threw the left, and then again, he kind of forced this issue by darting to his own right. Um, but normally, this is one of the reasons that people say when you fight a southpaw, you do everything backwards. Normally, if you're closed stance, so orthodox to orthodox, and that left punch comes at you, which way do you slip? Right? You slip to your own right. To the outside, it's safer. There's not a lot of weapons out there that can come up and punish you for that. You can throw the jab into the head kick again. I'm not saying it's perfectly safe, but it's generally speaking, nor am I saying you can never slip to the inside. You can. It's a little bit safer to slip to the outside. And the problem with trying to slip to the outside in the open stance, and again, if you're if, so, if that punch is coming at you, and you're just looking at it, you're used to a punch from that side coming at you, you slip to your right. It's just a little bit more difficult when you do it, A, with kicks, and B, again, against a southpaw, because what, you, what he, I hate to say, should have done, because, again, it's a little bit like I know best, I can only know best in this case because I know the outcome. But if Erosa had moved to his own left instead of his own right, he would have been away from the head kick that followed. Now, like I said, uh, Caceres kind of forced the issue a little bit by darting instead of just throwing and then following. That extra step and dart motion 
Kind of means that if Erosa moved to that side, he'd be closing distance. They might have, you know, wound up in a clinch or something. But you're also smothering, like, any kind of left, any kind of follow-up from the lead hand if you move into that side. So, again, it's... I hate to say it's what he should have done. Like, again, like, I'm some all-knowing combat sports pantheon or god or whatever. I'm most certainly not. But as an example of what, again, what you mean by you got to do things backwards against the open stance, this would be an example of that. So, take that for what it's worth. Uh, lightweight, this was your fight of the night. Drew Dober defeated Bobby Green via knockout, punches uh, 245 of the second. So, my analysis last week was pretty spot on for most of this. Like, Bobby Green does bad things to very kind of conventional fighters, and Drew Dober's a very conventional fighter. Bobby Green chewed him up for a round. Like, that whole first round, Bobby Green kind of, again, he kind of messed him up. He was jabbing. Uh, he would go, is he southpaw? Yeah, I think he was southpaw for a lot of this. He was landing the straight left. He busted up Dober's face a little bit, like not cuts, but the nose was bloody, the eyes were swelling, like he did damage. Um, second round, it's a little bit more of the same, but Dober starts kind of finding ways to navigate the distance a little bit more, gets him against the fence, and is able to get him into a bit of a firefight wherein he lands a Dober's southpaw. Right? Ah, I can't remember reason this is escaping my memory at the moment. Yeah, Dober's southpaw, excuse me. So, reverse some of that from before. Green's landing his power hand, it's his right hand. That just over and over again. And if... Bobby Green would have won this fight if Drew Dober didn't have a head made of cement. And I mean that as a compliment. Like, Drew Dober is very, very difficult to hurt. He is very, very difficult... To drop, uh, not impossible, but very, like how many times has he been stopped? Hang on, has he ever been stopped due to strikes? Once. Okay, hang on. There's one way back, like 11 years ago, somebody got him with strikes. Then I don't think anyone in the UFC has. So uh, decision, decision. Sort of a submission that was weird. Submission, 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 uh, submission, decision. Yeah, the dude has one stro- one stoppage loss due to strikes in his entire career. Nothing in the last decade. Um, yeah, I should have given that a little bit more weight than I did. I'll eat the crow there. Um, the first round was kind of how I thought this fight was going to play out, but Dober is just, he's hard to hurt, man. He's hard to dissuade. And once, if he gets a bit of a read on you, you know, he found a way to navigate distance, got Bobby Green against the fence, got hit like three times, but did land the left hand that dropped Green and kind of ended things. So credit to Drew Dober. Um, this tied him with Dustin Poirier for most knockouts in UFC lightweight history at eight. Good for him. Uh, that's a very, I, I mean that sincerely, like that's a hard record. It's a very hard record. Uh, does he have eight? 
I mean, the, the record says eight, so hang on. One, two, so what have we got? Gonzalez, Berkman, Reyes, Hawk Parast, Hernandez. Then the current three, yeah, Terrence McKinney, uh, Rafael Alves, and Bobby Green, yeah. Yeah, he called out Jalen Turner after the fight. Sure thing, man. You know, Drew Dober should be ranked. Let me just say that. I know he's got... Um, he's got a couple of losses recently that hurt that. The losses to Makashev and Brad Riddell. But Tony Ferguson is still ranked. And you all know my respect for Tony Ferguson. But Drew Dober's had, like... What was the stat? There's some absurd stat that goes into that I that goes into this. Like, yeah, Dude, Dober has six knockout wins since the last time Tony Ferguson won a fight at all, and that's sad for a lot of reasons. Partially because, as a big admirer of Tony Ferguson's work, that sucks. But it's it's reality. Like Tony Ferguson's last win was, what was it? It was that long ago. Would that be um? Was it the cowboy fight? I think it was. Let me double check that. But I think his last win was Tony was over Donald Cerrone. It was. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's lost five in a row since then, where, whereas, and geez, he's been finished in a bunch of those, too. Well, he's been finished in three of them. Um, yeah, like, Drew Dober should be ranked. Sorry, uh, again, I, I have deep respect for Tony Ferguson. But at this point, I don't think he's a top 15, I don't think he's a top 15 guy in the world at this point. Um, so I don't think he's a top 15 guy in the UFC. And that hurts. It hurts to say. But it is reality, and that needs to be acknowledged. So good win for Drew Dober. Kicking off the main card, uh, Mikhail Oleksiejuk defeated Cody Brundage via knockout punches, 316 to the first. Brundage had some good wrestling. Um, he got right after it, did not want to strike with Oleksiejuk at all. Understandable. Um, got a takedown. It did some decent work. There was a stand-up, some mat returns. Then Oleg Sejuk is able to bridge off the fence and sweep and gets on top. And Brundage off of his back was an entirely different animal that was very vulnerable. Um, Brundage did almost nothing to control Oleg Sejuk's posture. He was kind of trying to fight for wrist control. Which I'm not saying is nothing. It's not. It, it it can be an important component of defense. But if you're on your back, um, you've got to try and control the posture of the guy on top of you. Otherwise, he's going to start dropping bombs. That's what Oleksijic did. Um, he had his right hand kind of behind the head and was able to get his left going and eventually hurts him, stands up, passes the guard, and comes down with a left hand that just pretty much ends things. Oleg Sejic doesn't get a lot of press. doesn't get a lot of hype. But the man's never lost at middleweight. He has losses at a couple of catchweights and then a few at light heavyweight when he was fighting up there. At middleweight, he's undefeated. He brings the violence, guys. And, you know, 
we should he needs he's going to be a problem for that division. I don't know how far he's going to go, but uh, middleweight's fairly open at the moment. I don't and I don't just say that because uh, Adesanya lost the belt. Um, middleweight's been kind of open for people to make a run in for a while now, and just I think we're only now people are only now starting to realize it. Um, good win for Oleksijuk. All right, as for the prelims, Corey McKenna defeated Cheyenne Vlissimus via unanimous decision, 29-20 across the board. Vlissimus mostly kept things standing in the first. McKenna started getting takedowns in the second and third. Blah, blah, blah. Nothing here. Welterweight. Something here. Uh, Matthew Semmelsberger defeats Jake Matthews via unanimous decision, 130-27 to 29-28. I was 30-27, um, but the third round I thought was a little bit close. Uh, Matthews was doing okay in the first round, and then Semmelsberger catches him with a right, and Semmelsberger hits really, really hard. He drops him. Uh, he dropped him in every round. Like, I think Matthews had been dropped once in his previous fights before this one, and Semmelsberger out here dropping him every round. Um, makes me wonder if that Fialho performance wasn't a little bit of fooled, fool's gold. I was reminded that... Um, Jake Matthews on the feet made Sean Brady look very good in that department. And Sean Brady, you know, not too long ago gave up the first, like, TKO of Bilal Muhammad's UFC career. It might be a slight exaggeration, but certainly the first one in a long time. Like, Brady's not, Brady's not great shakes on the feet. And he was able to kind of deal with, handle Matthews pretty cleanly there. I wonder if that Fialho performance from Matthews again wasn't a little bit of fool's gold. Um, this was solid stuff from Semmelsberger, whose big claim to fame is just how hard he hits. Uh, see, we had a catchweight fight next because one of the competitors missed weight, but Rafa Garcia defeated uh, Hayasir Mahashte. Mahashte. Mahashte? I forget exactly how to pronounce that. I apologize. I'm going with Mahashte for the moment because it's easier to say. Um, 30-27 across the board. Uh, Garcia just... Mahashte had a good, like, two and a half minutes of the first round, but he started slowing down. Garcia just kept up the pace, kept up the pressure, got takedowns, worked him over. Just you know, pretty solid workmanlike win for Garcia. With the caveat that near the end of the first round... Uh, I think it was near the end of the first. Mahashte lands an elbow, kind of in the clinch. And it cuts Garcia, it's on the left side of his head, and it's up, up and back a little bit, like up into the hair. And, um, uh, Garcia just bled for the rest of the fight. I mean... The entire rest of the fight. Um, they, The doctor checked this between rounds at one point, I seem to recall, and let the fight continue, but... And Garcia won, fair enough. And Mahashte, again, Mahashte's a big guy for lightweight, but he missed pretty badly here. He needs to get that under control. Um, he, he faded, you know, he just couldn't quite deal with the pressure. Uh... And Garcia just everywhere, bleeding. Um, turns out, 
it took the the medical people at the p at the because uh, this was at the apex with the, the uh, it's the same place as the performance institute i seem to i believe i think that's true i'll have to double check that if i'm wrong forgive me but like it took them a couple of hours to get that bleeding to stop because that cut um was deep enough and in the wrong spot and nicked an artery yeah there are some arteries in your head up there there's smaller arteries but if you know anything about this you know the difference between you know, capillary damage vein damage and artery damage um getting in art arterial blood is brighter red it is and those are those are blood vessels that are they carry a lot more pressure I just mean I mean like PSI because of how the circulatory system works I shouldn't have to do like fifth grade biology here anatomy biology you know, if you want to try and break those apart but yeah arteries they're bigger and they carry blood out to capillaries then from there blood can uh, swaps oxygen for carbon dioxide comes back in veins most of the time if you get a cut it's a vein that opens up veins are a lot closer to the surface um, again usually that's what's going on or you're just getting like really smaller blood vessels like that are arteries only in the most technical of terms the stuff up in your head however like there's a lot of blood that goes there um, and it kind of runs up you know so uh, apparently this comes from Cub Swanson uh, he's corners Garcia they said he lost something like if you and if it took them two hours to stop the bleeding then the following makes more sense because he did not lose this much blood in the cage but they said he, he lost something like 20% of the volume of blood in his body. That's a lot of blood. Now, again, he, he did not lose that much in the cage. He lost a chunk of it in the cage. But that's more an issue of, you know, trying to get something to stop bleeding for two hours. Like, yeah, that's, um, that's going to be a problem. Like, that's going to mess you up. Uh, that, that's going to just drain a lot of the blood out of you. So, whew. Uh, one of the bloodier fights, like, just, pretty clearly, like, just by volume. Like, there's a lot of blood that was lost there. But solid enough win for Garcia. Uh, I mentioned control earlier, so we're going to talk about control here. Renat Fakrandinov defeats Brian Battle via unanimous decision. 230-25 from 30-27. Fire the judge that did not give Fakrandinov a 10-8. I gave him a 10-8 third. You could give him a 10-8 first. Um, Battle just had no real answer to the grappling. Um, Fakrandinov was willing to strike with him in places, landed some decent punches, but once he got a hold of him, just up and down, once he got him down, you know, a lot of control, a lot of ground and pound. Um, Battle's wall walking, not great. Some of Battle's other decision-making on his back with his guard. Um, just stuff he needs to work on still. And Battle's young, not just in years, but like in his career. I think I think it was Paul Felder on the commentary desk who mentioned this when they were like talking about this fight. Like, Fakran Dinov's current winning streak is longer numerically than Brian Battle's career. Like, that's how much of a winning streak this guy's on. It's big. He's very good. Uh, just most of that for the rest of the, for the fight. Third round, like, Battle throws this weird little combination 
it's a little bit like, you know, just a pad kicking, a pad hitting drill, but his hands like come back to his chest, like not even his like low shoulders. They like come back to his lower chest and Fakrandinov just crushes him with a right hand, uh, gets back on top, just, just a mauling, like a serious display of appropriate control and how to use that. And, and how to find places for ground and pound during that time for Fakrandinov here. Pay attention to that guy. He's good. Um, Manel Kopp defeated David Dvorak via unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Um, somewhat slower first round, but Dvorak just kind of struggled with some of the accuracy of Kopp. Kopp hurt him in the, was the third I think he hurt him pretty badly in the... He hurt him in the second and third. I forget which round he hurt him badly in. Might have been the second. Um, some nasty body shots from Kopp. You know, Manel Kopp is... That dude's gonna... He's gonna be a problem. He's going to be a problem. When he's on... Um, he's dynamic. He's got pretty good takedown defense. He's got power. He's a problem. And kicking everything off, Sergei Morozov defeated... Wait a minute. I missed a fight. My sincerest apologies. This fight t- took place between Semelsberg, between Semelsberger Matthews and Garcia Mahashte. Forgot this. Um, bantamweight. Saeed Nurmagomedov defeated Saeed Yakub Kakramanov via ninja choke. 350 of the second. Good fight here. Kakramanov's pace and his wrestling is bonkers. He came out, he attacked right away, almost got caught in the cho- in the guillotine choke early, fought his way through it, uh, found some good punches as they were kind of fence wrestling, did everything he could to control Nurmagomedov, won the first round, was winning the second. Like, Kakramanov was kind of taking it to Molsaid Nurmagomedov here. In transition, getting a takedown in the second round, he leaves, going for a single leg against the fence, Leaves his head on the outside a little bit too long. Nurmagomedov gets that arm under the chin and immediately goes full ninja choke. Um, if you're, there's other names for this, so I use the ninja choke because it helps me differentiate from other variations. Um, you might call it a power guillotine. You might call it. There's a million other names for this. So, but it's where you get that the choking arm is not. You don't have like the wrist joined under the neck or just the forearm the way you do in most guillotine variations, which if you get that arm all the way across so that you're, you've almost got like a rear naked choke grip, ideally, you know, where the, the crook of your elbow is kind of over the, the Adam's apple. And then you've got the bicep and the forearm on the sides compressing the carotid artery. And then to top it off, like not only is that the choke that deep, you go to the kind of rear naked choke grip, the figure four with the arms. So if I'm choking you with my left hand, the left hand grabs my right bicep, and then my right bicep kind of helps, my right arm kind of helps pull and contract, you know, like you, know, like you do with a rear naked choke. You just do that from the front with their head in your chest, and that's kind of the ninja choke. Again, you might have a slightly different name for it. Bear with me on the naming conventions here, guys. Um, it's a nice choke in general. It's hard to catch. But if you can catch it, it's very, very powerful. Um, Kakramanov was trying to fight it off. You can see when th- when he knew things were done. When his head was on the outside and he was caught in it, that's still very bad. 
But that choke gains power when the head comes into the center of your chest and you can leverage your body weight behind the choke. So instead of trying to just kind of compress the arms, again, you got the good grip with your arms, you got a good choke grip, then you pull them into your chest as you're leaning forward. So again, arms come back like you're rowing, body leans forward, and you just compress everything, and it's horrible. Once that head got from around the side, where he could maybe still kind of fight things, towards the center of the body, like there's just too much mass supporting the choke at that point, had to tap out. Um, great little scramble of a fight for a round and a half, a little over a round and a half. Uh, Saeed Yukub Kakramanov is very, very good. He, uh, Saeed Nurmagomedov, after the fact, he was huffing and puffing a little bit. Like, that's the pace these guys were on, and they're bantamweights. Um, he said, no, I could have fought for, you know, the full five rounds at that pace, and buddy, I appreciate you saying that, but I'm calling BS. Like, no, you were struggling there a little bit. So, big things in the future for both of those guys would be my hunch. Like, they're both really good. Um, nice to see Saeed Nurmagomedov, like, come back. You know, he had to... Normally, he's more of a striker. Uh, he can wrestle, but like, if you look at what he likes to do in fights, he likes to be a little bit more on the outside, you know, goes to spinning attacks and whatnot. Um, he's... Again, they're both very, very good. So seeing Saeed overcome adversity, um, it's a good sign. Like, the ability to fight back from the deficit that he was in here, good sign for his future. I mean, yeah, his only law he only has two losses overall ever. Um, one was back in ACB to Magomed Bibluadov, who for a long time was the only guy that had beaten... Um, so it's Magomed Magomedov. Bibluadov... Um, yeah, did not have the greatest run in the UFC. A little bit of an odd run there, because uh, he was undefeated when he came in. I was excited for him, and then he lost two in a row and got cut, and he's currently still in a... It's now ACA. But uh, then he has the one loss in the UFC to Hani Barcelos. He's on a four-fight winning streak now. Um, two of those finishes... Sorry, three of those finishes. Yeah, three finishes... He's very good. Um, bright things in the future for both of those guys. So, yeah, good on them. All right, now to the main, to the actual like fight that kicked everything off, Sergey Morozov and Journey Newson. It's a lot of good wrestling from Morozov. Um, kind of better than Newson, pretty much wherever this went. So solid stuff. Yeah, Morozov again. He's got a very deceptive UFC record. I believe he's like three and two. Might be four and two now. He's three and two now. He was two and two coming into this. Like. His losses were to Umar Nurmagomedov, who is very good, and a crazy back-and-forth fight with Douglas Silva de Andrade uh, earlier this year. Actually, it's one of the better fights all year. That happened back in February. Yeah, I don't think it's like my top five, but it would be top ten. So, Morozov's very good. That was that. Um, your bonuses. Um, your fight of the night, I mentioned already, Drew Dober, Bobby Green. I would have gone Sayuki and Ismagulov, but I don't object to it necessarily going to Dober and Green. Performances, bonuses went to Alex Kassaris and Mikhail Luxejuk. Um, Yeah, I'm fine with that. Again, I might have thrown one towards Saeed Nurmagomedov for that really nice ninja choke, but 
I'm not going to complain about the two, the direction they went. You know, I, I, I certainly believe that those two were better than, you know, better choices than Albazi's win. So, yeah, that was it. If you're curious about my full report as well as live, as well as my round-by-round -round scoring, that's in the MMAZone411mania.com. Give that a read if you're so inclined. Thank you. I always appreciate it. All right, let's move through the news and try to get out of here at a decent time. All right, uh, first up in the news, Doug Crosby is taking a little bit of heat. The, you know, terrible judge with those back-to-back -back terrible scorecards. A um, couple of things have happened here. One, in result, as a result of what everything that happened, the California State Athletic Commission has a new directive in place that says judges cannot travel more than one state away um, in the in that like day time period. So they'll let you go like from California to Nevada and back and forth over that like because remember, Doug Crosby was in Connecticut on Friday. For the Bellator card, and then flew out to the Apex on Sat on uh, Saturday for that UFC event. Is it the Apex or is it T-Mobile? Hang on. Yeah, that was T-Mobile. Um, because. Uh, yeah, yeah, because that, that was the pay-per-view. He ended that ugh, card for Blahovich and Ankalaev. Um. Anyway. So they're restricting travel for short notice, kind of, which, eh, I mean, I actually, it's a, the kind of thing that is kind of a step in the right direction. I mean, if you look up, um, you know, the, the stuff for, like, other officials in other sports, like, look, um, I'm going to say referees in this case because it's the closest analog we have for some of this stuff. But if you look up, you know, referees in the NBA or Major League Baseball, or the NFL even, like, you're not going to find a, a, an NBA ref who was, you know, on a on a game on a Friday, and then hops on a plane, or takes a you know, car ride, and then that Saturday is refing another major game. They, that's not, a, not acceptable. And so, I don't hate the general kind of policy. The problem is, like, Combat sports judging is difficult. No one wants to do it. They don't pay you a whole lot. Uh, it, it's a whole thing. So you, you're going to wind up limiting the available pool a little bit. But because there's no like up-and-coming talent, there's no people really getting into it, you get peop the people who should be cycled out of these positions are not cycled out of the positions. So, you know, it sucks. Um, so there's that. And then Eric Nixick, the head coach at Extreme Couture, uh, shared a story on, I forget the, uh, some MMA podcast or whatnot. I forget which one, so forgive me. But um, he was privy to a judges meeting, apparently a big like Zoom call for judges. And apparently Doug Crosby uh, did not conduct himself well. And there seems to be a little bit of, you know, heat coming on that. And I say, good, you suck at your job. I mean this in all sincerity. If you didn't read, um, Chuck Mendenhall wrote a, a profile piece on Doug Crosby years ago, and the guy's a little bit out there. Um, clearly just ignoring the established criteria in favor of what he thinks. Now, I'm not going to... Ariel Hawani even got in on this a little bit. Now, 
Ariel made a reach here. Now, he knows the people involved more so than I do. He might have a more informed position as far as what he said. But his opinion, and he stated it as opinion, his read on things, was that some of what Doug Crosby does when he scores fights is he tries to score them for who he thinks the promotion wants to win. And I don't know if that's true or not. That goes to Doug Crosby's intent and mindset in ways that I am not privy to. However, if we just consider the relevant scorecards in terms of, you know, for those two back-to-back ones that he gave, 50-45 for Sabatello is indefensible. Utterly indefensible. But Sabatello is the bigger personality, so you can see why maybe he might think that, you know, Bellator wants this guy to win. I don't know if that went through his mind or not. I'm saying it's not the craziest thing in the world to maybe... It's not the biggest logical leap. You know, the UFC likes Patty Pimblett. The fans like Patty Pimblett. Maybe, you know, so eh, maybe we give him a little more weight. That would be against the ethical code. That may, would probably be illegal. I have to double-check some of the legality around scoring fights. And I don't know if he has any actual evidence, uh, again, Mr. Helwani, to back up this claim. But uh, the fact that someone with Ariel Helwani's reputation in general, and look, I'm not asking you to be a fan of the man's, okay? Just for the record, I'm not asking you to be a fan. But do you trust his reporting... You, know, you should say yes to that because his track record is impeccable. So if he feels confident enough for whatever reason to say that, it does make me wonder if he doesn't know something else. Or, uh, again, like he might have just heard enough things behind the scenes to kind of start putting things together, but doesn't, but can't actually confirm it. So, or you know, he's making a logical leap based on more information than I have access to, which of course he has information more. He has information that I don't have access to, so who knows? But um, a lot of people are... Crosby, there's a lot of heat coming on him. And again, he's not good at his job. He kind of hasn't been for a while, so... Uh, I say, you know, bring it on. Stop letting the guy judge fights. All right, a couple of minor housekeeping notes here. Let's see. UFC, they have a card in February... Um, it was supposed to be held in Seoul, South Korea. Apparently, that's now moving to the Apex, which has to be a bummer. You know, one of the perks of being a professional fighter, not a lot of perks to that job. Some, not many. One of the perks is actually the world travel, right? Like You get to go to places you wouldn't otherwise go to and experience the world. That's a, that's a genuine perk of the job. So to go to potentially go from Seoul, South Korea, a very, very interesting. I've never been there, but you know, by all accounts, you know, South Korea is a lovely country, rich culture. To go from you know preparing to go there to some place you know, potentially new, interesting, to just well, you're going to the apex again. Now I don't know. This might be this might be you know public health related. You know, I don't know what South Korea's current uh, restrictions are on COVID or whatnot. I don't know. I imagine it's something like that that might have caused this, because nor- otherwise, you know, the UFC is looking to get back to 
kind of their travel schedule, so hopefully sooner rather than later, because, I mean, look, let's just, every other sport has fans in attendance. The UFC running crap at the Apex now just, eh, it feels Bush League, right? It feels C-tier. Especially when you have, you know, other stuff that's back to more or less normal. So, again, bit of a disappointment there. Um, minor thing to touch on, because there's not a lot other than some speculation at this point to talk about, but uh, the Francis Ngannou, the UFC heavyweight champion, has indicated that he is a free agent. Um, John Nash... On one of has a video or was on one of uh, one of the podcasts he does. He's uh, at Hey Not the Face on Twitter. Uh, did a pretty lengthy breakdown of other UFC contracts that we know of, other contract language that we know of, and kind of you know is this true? And it very well might be that um, in this case, the UFC heavyweight champion is indeed a free agent. So we don't know exactly what's going to come into play here. Um, it doesn't feel like he has quite the leverage that he used to. You know, in, in the immediate wake of that win over Cyril Gaon, like, that dude had a ton of momentum. Um, doesn't quite feel like he has it anymore. Uh, between just the time off and the injury and, you know, some of the, some of the prospects that he might have been kind of leaning on seem to not quite be there anymore. You know, Tyson Fury had him up at one point and said, yeah, we're going to find some way to make this happen. And that doesn't seem to be happening right now. And Tyson Fury is kind of finally making moves. Like, we're going to get him versus Usyk, please. Shouldn't be that complicated. Uh, But, you know, boxing is boxing, right? Um, There's just, and that was kind of the big one. You know, he wants to box because there's more money to be made there at the higher end. Really, in a lot of respects all along the spectrum, but neither here nor there. Um, so we're just going to kind of have to wait and see, but at the moment, uh, he might be a free agent and able to field some other offers. So we will keep you apprised of that situation, of course, as it develops to the extent that we have information worth discussing. All right. Lastly, the UFC welterweight title is in a little bit of flux of the title picture. Um, Leon Edwards, the plan was to have Leon Edwards fight Kamaru Usman in an immediate rematch of their most recent fight in England. When was it next year? Have a quick look. Uh, This would have been March, so UFC 286. Um, That was the plan. Uh, Rumor has it, and you can take this uh, for what it's worth. Stephen Thompson mentioned this, I think, on um, uh, some interview appearance. But it uh, seems Kamaru Usman has hurt himself and might be out of the running for that fight. If true, that opens up some very interesting possibilities. Because, let's be real here, not a lot of op- not a lot of reality to the UFC giving Colby Covington a shot against Leon Edwards. Not because he's not deserving, but Colby probably wins that fight, right? 
I, I don't mean to disrespect Leon Edwards, who's a very good fighter who overcame a tremendous deficit when he beat Kamaru Usman. Like, not knocking the guy. I just mean stylistically. Like, Usman was able to out-wrestle him. Covington will be able to out-wrestle him. They're different sty- they have different styles of wrestling in some respects, but the the fundamental reality is both those guys are just better wrestlers, better MMA wrestlers, better friends wrestlers, however you kind of want to couch that. They're better at it than Leon Edwards. And the style with which Colby fights, like, he doesn't, he's not going to give you the opportunity that you found, and I mean found in a, like, in a, in a good way. Like, I don't mean that Kamaru Usman just kind of dropped his hands and went, go ahead, take a free shot. I mean, you found an opening there because of how Kamaru Usman was fighting in that moment, and you capitalized, and it was brilliant, and again, hats off. That same opportunity will not be there fighting Colby Covington because of how Colby Covington fights. It doesn't mean there aren't other opportunities, but I would favor Colby in that fight. I don't know that the UFC wants to do that. I don't know that they want to give, again, I don't know if they want to give him a third shot. That would be his third title shot. I don't know that they want, because if he wins, and let's say he wins convincingly, and whether that's, you know, stoppage or just wide decision or what have you, but say Colby Covington wins convincingly. Are we really going to do a third fight between Usman and Covington? Because that's kind of what would be next. So I don't know that we're going to go that direction. But if the UFC doesn't want to do Covington, and Usman's out of the equation, it's not that there aren't more deserving welterweights, but are we going to pretend that they might not do Jorge Masvidal here? Remember, Masvidal's kind of started rising to fame in 19... Knocked out Darren Till, and then in the back got into a fight with Leon Edwards. That's where the three-piece in the soda came from. Are we going to pretend that they might not try to run that back? Run it back's a bit of an exaggeration, but they're not going to capitalize on that back in London? That's a much more winnable fight for Leon Edwards than, than Colby Covington or... Kamzat Shemaev, assuming Shemaev's even fighting at welterweight anymore, or Gilbert Burns, or Shavkat Rachmanov, or, you know, pick your poison. The way they match up, that's a... Hori is a more winnable fight for Leon Edwards than a lot of the rest of that top... at the top of that division. Bilal Muhammad... Um, is Bilal Muhammad... Hang on, I gotta think about Muhammad here for a second, because strictly because Leon Edwards was kind of beating the crap out of him before the eye poke in their fight. Masvidal more winnable than Ed, than Muhammad. I'm not sure. Bigger name, and if they're roughly approximate, you know, uh, Masvidal's still a bigger name. So, so yeah, that's... Uh, we might be looking at Masvidal, so there's a little bit of uh, murkiness around the welterweight title fight around two, uh, UFC 286, assuming that that's still on the table. I don't know who else they would go... I don't know who else they would main event the O2 with. Like, they, it's a pay-per-view, so they want a title fight. I think he's the only British champion. 
Um, I don't know. We'll wait and see. Uh, this might be, you know, there might be some exaggeration to the injury. Who knows? But worth pointing out, that's something that's kind of floating out there in the ether. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, all right. That's everything I've written down. Let's check Twitter. And if nothing new is broken in that space, we will get out of here. All right. Nothing new in the Twitter space for MMA. Sue, plugs. Let's see, this week... On Damn You Hollywood, myself, Mark Radulich, Alexis Haina, and another guest for that one. Let me double check. Uh, Damn You Hollywood will be Monday. That would be so, the 19th. And we will be reviewing uh, David. Sorry, not Alexis Haina. That's me, Mark, and David Wright. We will be reviewing Avatar The Way of Water. So be on the lookout for that. I don't know what I'm going to say about it. I haven't seen it yet. I will see it tomorrow before we review it. So, it's doing solid enough numbers at the moment. Uh, at the end of the weekend, I think it's like 434 million worldwide, um, which is okay. Um, which is okay. It only had like 130 million opening domestically, which was about in line with reasonable expectations for the film, I think. So uh, we're going to have to... That movie needs hold. Like more, I'll go into detail on Damn You Hollywood. I know you guys may not necessarily want to listen to me talk movies here, but that's going to need pretty strong week-to-week hold if it's got to hit a big number. And it's got to hit a pretty big number. So be on the lookout for that. We will talk about that. Uh, tomorrow. Alright, uh, what else do I got? The usual spate of professional wrestling coverage. AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW stuff on Thursday. WWE Smackdown on Friday. That is what I have at the moment. So, no podcast next week. Um, we will see you, I will not see you all again until 2023. So, let me just say, it's been a year. I had some ups and downs on the pro- on the podcast here. Uh, some technical difficulties that I am very grateful you were all kind enough to bear with me through. Uh, we've had some pretty big spikes in a few different months. I'm not entirely sure what caused those, but I'm very, very grateful for them. Looking to do more stuff in the new year. So, for the last time this year, stay safe out there. Have a Merry Christmas, or uh, that's my default, So, or however else you choose to celebrate the end of the year holidays. Stay safe out there. I repeat myself because, well, especially if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a rough time of year. Don't do anything stupid. And, as always, continue to be well, be safe, and behave. I will see you all in 2023.